think over the last year, maybe a few years, you know, one of the things that I, I notice more, I've noticed more and more, is people talking about the need for personal growth, right? The, you know, hear words like self-development, how to better yourself, how to improve yourself, and so I think you get the idea. It's, it's this notion that, you know, one must not be complacent, that you need to continue to grow, you need to mature, you need to, um, yeah, be better. And I think especially this, this last year with all the, you know, quarantining and distancing, working from home, and maybe even some the extra cash that been put in our pockets, on more than one occasion, I, I saw how I was really encouraged that this was a time to learn. This was, this was a time to, to really, you know, boost your resume, to, to pick up a new skill, to get in shape, to start a business, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually happy to, I started, started a food business with, with my wife, which is kind of a crazy idea. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of what we were encouraged to do. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but, you know, how many, how many times have, how many times did someone ask you for a book recommendation and how many times did you ask for a recommendation to learn more about something? Uh, how many times through social media, you know, did you see someone say that, you know, a particular lecture or an article or a book, a TV show, a movie or a podcast going on and on is a must. Like you have to get your hand on that. Now, whether or not people genuinely care for real lasting change, no one wants to be perceived as someone that has not grown or matured, all right? We see that even in young children at a very young age, they want to showcase what they're capable of doing, right? And at some point, they don't want to associate themselves with babies, but they want to be with the big kids, right? I see that even in my, with my daughter. She wants to always be amongst the big kids and kind of disassociate herself from the babies. And she's, she doesn't, you know, she hates it. Sorry, I, I, I said I wouldn't, you know, use my child as a sermon illustration for every sermon, but it's kind of just, <laughs> it's kind of comes out, um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure all pastor kids here would, would agree. Um, now, even with parents, even with parents, there's, there's, a, there's a concern for how their child has, you know, either met or not met certain developmental milestones, right? So we're all very uh, desiring of growth. Among those of you who profess to follow Christ, to know Christ, when you, when you look back at the past few years and then you see where you are today, maybe some of you have assessed even where you are spiritually, right? How you've matured as a church. But let me ask you, ask you this. When's the last time you thought of the maturity level or how mature the church is? How mature, how mature is the church? And if you made that assessment, how did you come to that conclusion, right? Was it based on Sunday morning attendance, the different trends, you know, maybe your percentage breakdown? Was it, you know, uh, how hot or cold a prayer meeting is? Is it the children's program or uh, the midweek gatherings? Is it, you know, how much the, the members give in their monthly or weekly giving? You know, if I actually sent out a survey, an anonymous survey, and got some feedback, I, I would imagine I would get all sorts of answers with such a wide range. And it would, you know, make it impossible to actually assess how the church is doing. Now, thankfully for us, we have the Word of God made available to us to wrestle with this question of maturity in the church. And so we turn to Paul's epistle, 
his letter to the church in Ephesus. We see the first few chapters, he, he first kind of lays down this theological foundation of, of them, them mainly being the Gentiles, being reconciled in Christ and being part of this new humanity. And so when we get to chapter 4, the, and, and, and Paul urges the readers to walk in a matter worthy of the calling, the, the readers would have known exactly what he's talking about. Right? He, he's, he's referring to um, you know, topics like election, predestination. He's, he's, he's reminding them of their calling as adopted children of God, chosen before the foundation of the world. Right? This prayer of love, this really deep prayer at the end of chapter 3, that the people of God have been brought together as one, reconciled through the Spirit to God. Even a Trinitarian basis for everything. And so when we get to chapter 4, it's very hard to ignore this emphasis on unity, on unity. If you, just, if you, just a lot of one this. There's, there's a, after, in chapter 3, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In, chapter, in verse 4, one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. So when we get to our text for this morning, starting in verse 11, we can then hone in on searching for answers to that question, you know, what does maturity, what is Christian maturity, what does the maturity in the church look like? Now this morning we're continuing in our sermon series on revival, where we've been seeking, praying for, asking God for spiritual renewal, not just individually, but also collectively as a church and in our communities, right? We're, we're seeking, we're asking ourselves that we need to wake up. We need to wake up from our spiritual comas. And I believe God does have a word for us to examine ourselves and the church to see if there's some renewal or spiritual awakening we need to do regarding our maturity. So in our text, we see three benchmarks, three benchmarks to Christian maturity. First is that it is relational. Second, it speaks the truth. And third, it is loving. So Christian maturity is relational, it speaks the truth, and it is loving. It's time to grow up, church. It's time to grow up. And that, I hope, is what you leave. If you remember anything, it's, it's, that, it's just that. The first benchmark of Christian maturity is that it is relational. So we must grow up relationally. So what do I mean by that? Right? What do I mean when I say we must grow up relationally? There's actually a twofold answer to that question. On one end, it means to grow up in a relationship to Christ and one in a relationship to one another. So first, Christian maturity is relational in the sense that it happens, to, it happens in relationship to Christ. Meaning, he must be the goal and the purpose, but also the source of life. So he is the goal, the aim, the purpose, but also where we get our life. He's our sustenance. So when we look at verse 13, we see how the standard by which the growth of the church must be measured, and it is the stature and the fullness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must grow in our likeness of Christ. He must be our aim. We must walk in the, we must walk in the Spirit and measure ourselves by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those of us who call ourselves here the body of Christ, that he's not just our Savior, but also our Lord. How comfortable have we gotten with our works of the flesh? 
All forms of sexual immorality, idolatry, our enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, the dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like this. And how often have we told others and maybe even told ourselves that we're not perfect? I'm a work in progress. But deep down in your heart, you actually don't really believe that. And if you do believe that, that you are a work in progress, and you have identified certain areas of growth, what are you doing about it? What are the active steps you are taking to exercise the fruit of the Spirit and not succumb to the desires of your flesh? Jesus Christ, the head of our church, is not only our aim, goal, or purpose, but he is also what gives us life. And he is not just this alternative source of life. He is the only source of life. You know, listen to the words of Jesus, the giver of life himself. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Many of you are familiar with the, the metaphor of a, the body of Christ, the, the church being a body of Christ, right? I think of a body. You can have, not to get graphic, but you can have missing limbs, even organs, and still have a functioning body, sometimes even a very healthy body. And it's amazing how the human body can adapt. Um, you know, I've, I've heard of cases where there, there are people that are mi- missing parts of the brain but you would never know that because of how well they're functioning. But the images will show that the, the other parts would kind of step up and, and be able to do the function of, the missing, of, the, of the, the missing part. It's fascinating stuff. But what about a body that's completely missing the head? Now, I'm no medical expert, so you guys can let me know if I'm wrong on this, but... I don't think there's a lot of adapting to that. A body without a head is lifeless. And if Christ is the head of the church, he is the source of life, which means staying connected to the head is a matter of life and death. You know, you hear about, you know, mummified bodies from thousands of years ago and how they were, you know, perfectly preserved because of the embalming system, right? But those bodies are completely lifeless and powerless. So what are the embalming systems that give us this false sense of life that we've embraced? Maybe it is just checking off the list of what good Christians are supposed to do. Whether that may be Sunday gathering as we're doing here. And I I hope we do more of that. Whether it's, you know, monthly giving, serving and all those things. But they're not done with the heart of worship. It's not done to the glory of God. Maybe you're even holding on to the fact that, you know, your parents are believers, so you were born into a Christian family, and so you were born a Christian. Whatever the case may be, we must be grounded in the truth and that our purpose and goal is in becoming more like Christ unto the glory of God, and only in Him is there true life and lasting strength. 
So Christian maturity is relational in the sense that it is in relationship to Christ, but it's also relational because it must happen with other brothers and sisters in the church. I'm going to say this a lot, but we cannot forget the context of where we find our text today. As important as personal growth and spiritual maturity is, Paul's primary concern here in our text is the maturity of the church. So going back to verse 13, Paul describes the church growing in maturity as, what does it say? Mature manhood. The literal translation in the Greek actually says mature man, or in some of the older translations, you may see uh, um, the perfect man. But I don't know if you notice, Paul didn't say mature men in the plural. He says mature man in the singular. But also later in verse 14, while referring to those who are immature, those who are being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, he doesn't say child. He says children in the plural. So I believe Paul was being very intentional in describing the mature church as a mature man, a singular body, to emphasize the oneness of the body of Christ and the need for being in relationship with one another so that we can all grow in relationship to grow together and not in isolation. You also see in 1 Corinthians where you know, Paul talks about the, the um, feeding, that they had, he had to feed them milk because they weren't ready for the solid food. And it's funny, he, he even says that, and you're still not ready, right? You're still only good to drink milk. But the context here is that they're being divisive over taking sides of who, who was more legit. Was it Apollos or was it Paul? So they were drawing these lines um, that and it was, it was, they were kind of in line with the practices of, of the day where it was about you know, who, who was right and who was wrong. Paul's rebuking them and calling them immature Infants in Christ for their divisiveness and their inability to be unified over their collective mission to work for the sake of the kingdom advancement. So going back to our metaphor of the church being a body. And it doesn't take much to really make sense of this, but like all body parts have to grow proportionately. Right? They all have to grow proportionately. Um, I don't know if you've, you guys have seen pictures of um, professional arm wrestlers. Um, they, you know, especially if it's a guy that kind of focuses on their, like, dominant hand, you see, like, one arm is significantly bigger than the, uh, the, than the other. It, it just looks very abnormal. And it, it comes from overtraining of one other, over the other, right? But when we think of spiritual maturity, we have such an individualistic perspective, right? It's all about my walk with God. It's about how I am growing spiritually, how I am maturing, how I am growing in the spiritual disciplines like, you know, scripture meditation and prayer and service. And yes, all those things are vital. They are invaluable, meaning there is no mature church without mature individual members of the church. And it's completely normal to not you know, be in an intimate relationship with everyone in the church. It's just not practical, and I don't think that's how God designed us to be in each other's lives. However, the question is, am I genuinely concerned about the spiritual maturity of others in the church? 
As Pastor Charles mentioned a few weeks ago, do I love and have gratitude for the church? Or under the excuse of, you know, I can't get into me. I can't get deep with everyone. That's just unrealistic. Under that excuse, am I not making much of an effort in getting to know and pouring into those who I may not share as much in common via life experience, personality, interests, life stages, and so forth? When we jump and, and get to verse 16, it says that we are to be joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. To be joined and held together. And it's only when each body part is working properly that the body grows and then builds itself up. So the body must stay connected to the head. And it is our oneness with Christ the head that gives us the body of Christ's purpose in life. And we all need to stay connected to the head so that we can stay connected to one another. We're all dependent. We're all dependent to Christ and dependent to one another. Now, Alistair Beck said in a sermon on the same passage, he says, quote, The harmony of Christ's body is under his headship, right? The headship of Christ. And the effective functioning of the body of Christ needs all the moving parts to be unified in gospel ministry. Church, we must grow up relationally. We must grow up relationally. The second benchmark to Christian maturity is speaking the church. So we must grow up in speaking the truth. Let's look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, we already talked about the truth that we must grow up in every way into Christ. But I think verse 15 also makes it very clear that there's a close relationship, there's a close connection with speaking the truth and maturing into Christ. And maybe there's already those of you who are kind of feeling a little anxious, like it says speaking the truth, and there's another part that follows after that, and I haven't really said anything about that yet. And so don't worry, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But what is Paul referring to when he says speaking the truth here in verse 15? Again, remember Paul his emphasis, his heart is for the unity of the church. So when we go back to verses 11, 12, and 13, he talks about the ministry leaders, those who are equipped, uh, those who are called to equip the saints for the purpose of building the body. And then in verse, 10, in verse 13, it says, we all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. When Paul says unity of the faith, he's not talking about uh, uh, someone's personal faith in Christ, like your belief, like how much you believe uh, in God or, or in Christ. You know, so it's not, it's not that faith. He's, he's specifically talking about doctrinal truth. The core Christian beliefs such as truth about God, truth about the sinful nature of man, the pathway to salvation, um, the life and work of Christ, the deity of Christ, the, the uh, God's standard of holiness, and so forth. That's what he's referring to when he says doctrinal truth. And while it is important to speak truthfully, right, to not lie, like to be honest, that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about speaking the truth in the sense that you need to be honest. He's talking about uh, proclaiming gospel truth, doctrinal truth. So when he says speaking the truth, he's urging the church to keep each other in check. 
Speak doctrinal truth to one another as it is revealed in the word of God. To remind each other of their oneness, that all that he had been talking about previously. And that will be the sign of their maturity as a body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must speak the truth to one another. You know, earlier I mentioned how you know, there are certain leaders that are appointed to equip the body for the work of the ministry. While pastors are the ones who must be qualified and fit to faithfully interpret the scriptures and preach the, the, the word, this faithful speaking of biblical truth is also the responsibility and commitment for all of us. All of us. But in order to speak the truth, we must know the truth. In order to know the truth, we must read and study the scriptures. Uh, in my introduction, I talked about, you know, this desire for personal growth. And I talked about you know, all the different book recommendations, right? You know, um, our, our, our bettering ourselves, learning and growing. Again, you know, no, no show of hands, but just ask yourself, how many books have you read in the last year? If you can think about different books you've read. How many books of the Bible have you read? How much of what you are reading and studying is, is informing Scripture? And how much, of what, how much of Scripture is informing what you are reading and studying? And as much as you, myself, have sought out resources, recommendations from friends, family, experts... How much more have we sought out the filling and the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide us in our studying of His Word? Are you searching the Scriptures to find proof text for a particular conviction or a way of life? Or is your heart being searched and known by God as it is revealed in His Word? I think it's an understatement to say that there's been a lot of tension over political, societal, even theological issues in the last 18 months, two years or so. You know, how, how to deal with COVID and everything that came out of that. What to make of the George Floyd incident and all that came out of that. The role of government, the role of the church, the role of the family. Going through the election cycle, that was fun. And all that came out of that. And all the stuff that we continue to deal with today, individually, but also as a church. You know, I've had my fair share of conversations over some of these issues. And, and regardless of what my position may be, I'd, be love, I'd love to talk to you about some of those things. But there, there have been a few things that I've repeatedly seen as I've engaged in some of these conversations from other believing brothers and sisters and it, it, that give me some major concerns, specifically in regards to growing and speaking the truth. I just want to touch, on, touch up on one of them, and that is the notion of the truth, your truth, and my truth. Brothers and sisters, mature Christians and a mature church must be in the business of searching the truth. And this may be difficult for some of you to hear, but there cannot be multiple truths, which means there cannot be your truth or my truth. There is only the truth. 
And Oprah was wrong when she said, I know I'm quoting Oprah here, but she was wrong when she said, quote, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. That's heretical. There's only one truth. And the most powerful tool we have is his word through which he reveals the truth. Truth is not subjective. It is objective. Subjective truth is an oxymoron. Because you cannot have contradicting truth that cannot be both validated. Words have meaning. And yes, words have many meanings. But when it is used within a sentence or a phrase or a paragraph or a letter, they have a particular meaning. Now, I personally believe that searching the truth is an an important principle to apply just in making sense of everything that's happening in the world. But I most certainly believe that it is not something that can be compromised when it comes to interpreting Scripture. When God revealed His words to us through the inspired writers, through the 66 books of the Bible, there was meaning and intent behind each word and sentence. Now, yes, there are a wide range of application and nuances and significance but there can only be one correct interpretation of Scripture. As the late R.C. Sproul said in one of his lectures on knowing Scripture, he says, quote, the right of privilege, no, sorry, the right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. Let me say that again. The right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. Now, that doesn't mean that if there's a conversation or a friendly debate between two people that one is right and the other is wrong. Both could be wrong. But that doesn't mean that there is not one correct interpretation. You know, how many of you have gotten into some of these debates or we can call it friendly discussions with major disagreements? Maybe even an argument. But at some point... At the end of the conversation, I won't say who it was. Maybe it was you, maybe it was the other person. But you were told and all said something along the lines of, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. (coughs) Now, you know, if you're talking about, you know, who's going to the Super Bowl first, the Cowboys versus the Lions, that's a really sad debate. But, you know, and, and certainly we may all agree that maybe no one wins ever in our lifetime or ever in eternity. Um, Lions, yeah, no. Who, I, no, sorry. Um, but all jokes aside, I believe there are a lot of issues in the church that have created lines of division. A lot of private conversations taking place mainly amongst more like-minded people, and there's not a lot of room when there are disagreements that arise for their to be searching for the truth together. And if some of these issues actually have impact of the way we see each other, in many ways how we live out our lives and our faith in this world, we must be willing to work through the disagreements in hopes to actually arrive to the correct biblical interpretation. We must have the humility to believe that our interpretation may be incorrect. 
But at the same time, we must be willing to speak the truth to one another. We need each other to speak the truth, and we can't take the easy way out to end a conversation by just agreeing to disagree. You know, what happened to this whole stay at the table? We need to continue in conversation. Because the table these days, it just seems to be a, a place where we mainly just affirm and validate everyone's opinions and interpretations. Not a space where disagreements can be tested by the truth. What happened to being like the Bereans who not only received the word with eagerness, but they also examined the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul said were true? Now, I think we can all agree that Paul was not just some nobody. He wasn't some youth Bible study leader. He wasn't some elder apprentice at a local church. He was widely accepted as the apostle. And the Bereans checked that guy to make sure he was speaking the truth. Now, earlier we talked about how our relationship to one another is a benchmark of a maturity in the church. So when's the last time you approached a brother or sister and encouraged them with the truth through Scripture? When's the last time you confronted someone or someone confronted you of your sin and rebuked you through Scripture? I'm not talking about just sharing wise words with one another. I'm not talking about giving each other good advice how to be a better spouse or better parent or better friend. Again, all good, necessary things because we are a family. I'm talking about the weighty, life-giving truth of the gospel, the doctrinal truths that we see in his word that are not optional or just highly, rec rec highly recommended, but absolutely, absolutely necessary for the maturity of the body of Christ. So church, maybe all be like the Bereans and grow up in speaking the truth to one another. So far, we've looked at the two of the three benchmarks of Christian maturity as we find in our text. The first was being relational, right? We need to be in, grow in relation to Christ and in relation to one another. And second, that we must speak the truth and how important it is that we speak the truth to one another in the church. So this last benchmark, and hopefully it's not a surprise to you, is that it is love. Christian maturity is loving. So church, we need to grow up in love. This expression, in love, is found six times in the entire letter to the Ephesians. But just in our text, in verses 11 through 16, uh, Paul uses it twice. We see it in verse 15 where he says, speak the truth in love. And later in verse 16, he says that, you know, as the body parts are working together, that the body would grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. I believe it is certainly one of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Full disclosure, since we are in the business of speaking truth, this is purely anecdotal. It's not verified facts that this is the, one of the most quote, misquoted scriptures. But I think on one level, we can at least all agree that it is something that we hear quite a bit, this notion of speak truth in love, truth in love. And it's not just said within church walls, but also said from Christians or Christians, those who do not press, profess to follow Christ. And there almost seems to be this emphasis 
on love. And, and the speaking the truth in love is, is used as a principle for how we to speak to one another, right? It's, it's more about the type of tone we should have in, 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 when engaging in tough conversations. Again, Paul certainly had love for one another in mind when he wrote this letter because he calls to unity in love. But going back to verse 15, speaking the truth in love, our context makes it very clear that he is not talking about speaking in a manner that makes someone feel good or to protect the other person's feeling. I said protecting the other person's feeling. While it is extremely important that in our conversation we are mindful, mindful of how it may be perceived, but that cannot be our main concern. When Paul uses the phrase in love, he's not talking about an emotion or a tone. It's more a matter of a, a, a manner or motivation. Again, we have to read it in our context. Talking about unity. He's talking about there's a, the need for oneness in Christ and our need to resist the rebuilding of these dividing walls of hostility. And so when we get to verses 14 and 15, we see that truth is actually not put against love. It's put against false teaching. So what does it say? It says, by the human cunning, that's the every wind of doctrine of the, those who are immature are, 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 are up against. So it's truth against false teaching, and it's not truth against love. I mean, sorry, it's not, it's not love against truth. It's love against deceiving. The two should not be held in tension. The two have to work in harmony. And, and truth and love are, are so closely tied together that I was even hesitant to create two separate sections because I, I, I wanted to you know, minimize the misunderstanding of, of, of the, the, the creating this, this dichotomy. You know, speaking the truth, it does not refer to a hardness and love is not a softness. Right? It's, it's not that there's a scale of truth and love and we just need a, a good balance. We just need a good balance when we're having difficult conversations because of how it may be perceived by others. Truth is not an antithesis of love. And as one commentator put it, quote, the truth as proclaimed should not be dissociated from love or promoted at the expense of love, while a life of love should embody the truth of the gospel. So it is our love for God which should drive our love for others, which also means God determines what loving is and what loving is not, as it is revealed in his word. So what is love? 1 Corinthians 13, it's patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. As he called his disciples to abide in him. He says, if they keep his commandments, they will abide in his love. So what were his commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, we must love one another as he loved us. And his love for us, what ultimately led him willingly to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. And that is exactly what Christ did for us. By dying for our sins, 
for our being made right with God, which now enables us to love one another more and more, not the way the love demands us to love one another, but as he loved us. Love is a matter of life and death, and we must take our growing up in love seriously. When we speak of the fear of man, I think, at least for me, and maybe you would disagree, oftentimes I think of it in context of evangelism, how we are to not fear man when we're proclaiming truth to our unbelieving family and friends and neighbors. But I wonder, church, again, I'm part of church, this is all, to all of us, I wonder if there is actually a heavy dose of the fear of man in the church. Maybe even in our church. Which prevents us from loving one another in the way that God desires for us to love one another. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we definitely should be mindful of our words and how they're received. But more importantly, we should be concerned with how other people are received by God. Our willingness to speak the truth because how it may offend our brother or a sister is not what is loving. It's actually quite selfish and self-centered. And it is one of the saddest things to see when a brother or sister is living in sin, a professing Christian is, they continue to be in fellowship with the body, but there is an unwillingness from the body to clearly speak the truth in love. And the reality is that is a clear sign of lack of love. We are being more concerned with how we may be perceived by this person or by this person's friends or whoever than how we are perceived by God. But our love for one another should be so strong and so potent that we must be willing to speak the truth. And if we can't display Christ-like love to one another in the church, how are we to do that outside the church? Only when we love one another as Christ loved us is when the world will know that we are Christ's true followers. Growing in love, loving in a way that God intends us for, to love one another as he revealed to us in his word is a clear sign of biblical maturity. Now after this very, you know, very well-known passage, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul continues to write, in verse 11, and he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. You know, I think even the, the sign of immaturity in the child is that it's a lot of being driven by emotion and feeling in the moment. And there's, they're not quite developed in their critical thinking skills to be able to put all what is true in their environment together, right? And so, you know, little ones have temper tantrums. You know, you said you can't eat the piece of candy. It's like, why? Well, this is dinner time. Well, I want it. doesn't matter if it's good or bad or what is, is You want it because you want it. And so there's this, there's, there's a, you know, a, a, a disregard for truth or, or, or an inability to hear truth, right? And as they grow mature, Growing in self-awareness, growing in and communication skills, all those things is when they can to grow and then are able to put all that stuff together. But I just wonder if, if we here, the church, are still having spiritual temper tantrums. 
Um, I believe mature love is first self-reflective. You know, there's, there has to be a lot more looking into the mirror before flashing the mirror to someone's face. So yes, before we speak, let alone speaking the truth, or before we do anything, we should ask ourselves, is this coming from a place of love as Christ loved me? What is the motivation of my heart? Do I truly love this person? Or is it driven by something else? For the sake of being correct, being correct for the sake of being correct, unity for the sake of unity that is not in Christ, fear of man over fear of God, love for the sake of love. And while the human heart is deceitful above all things, through prayer, through meditating on his word, through waiting, when we do come to that place where in your heart of hearts, this is a place of love, and God is your witness, and when our actions, what, what we desire to do or share is in line with Scripture, then we must, we absolutely must speak and act boldly to one another for the sake of the oneness of Christ, for the sake of the glory of God. We must grow up in love. Coming to a close, you know, when you, when you take your time to read today's text, you know, this is Paul's letter to the Christians in, in Ephesus, and he does not have, when he's referring to the church, he does not have himself separate from the church when he's talking about maturity. He says, until we attain the unity of faith. He says that we may no longer be children, that we are to grow up in every way into him. So he, the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul himself is fully aware that even he, as the Apostle, is a work in progress. So yes, we are all a work in progress. And this church certainly is a work in progress. It is this process of maturation that will only come to an end when Christ returns Thankfully for us, we have the spirit that dwells in us. You know, we've talked about the, the body being the temple. A lot of times people think that that's just me, the body, and where the spirit resides. This is where the spirit resides. And this is what the spirit leaves. This is what needs to wait on the guiding of the spirit. We must be united in the spirit, but also mature together. Brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is not optional. It's not just something that is good for our soul. It's vital. It's a matter of life and death. And as um, Dr. Martin Lowe Jones once said, there's nothing more tragic than someone remaining in the church in childish condition. Someone who's been a Christian, a professing Christian for quite some time, but is still in an infantile state in their faith. But it is a process. It's a journey that we've all committed to go on together. So we must extend grace to one another. Going back to uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, we must walk in the manner worthy of our calling with what? All humility and gentleness, with patience and yes, bearing with one another in love. So we cling on to Jesus who said he was the way, the truth, 
and the life. Jesus is the truth. And he's the only way to the Father, according to his words. And it's only through him, as our head of this body, that there is life. But may we not forget, brothers and sisters, may we not forget that we're not just some random group of spiritual people. But we've been made one in Christ. And we must be eager to maintain this unity. It takes effort, pain, perseverance. And this growth and maturity of the church is not for the advancement of some career or, or bettering or giving us a better chance for upward mobility, but it is for the advancement of the kingdom of God and upward worship unto him. We must all grow up relationally and speaking the truth and in love. Church, it is time to grow up. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.